Hi there, my name is Michael Harris. I'm host of Falling Up Radio. I'm glad you're here today. Whether you're listening on, on Apple or Stitcher, or you're listening to the audio, or, or you're actually watching the video online, either right here at the website, fallingupradio.com, or at our YouTube page, and you can find that at Falling Up Radio as well. So I'm really super excited for our guest today. Uh, before I men mention him, I'm, I'm also going to let you know that uh, my book, Falling Down, Getting Up, right here, you can get on the website for free. Um, so if you just go to the website again, fallingupradio.com, you can download that the ebook for free. And if you want a printed copy of the book as well, um, you can get that for a little shipping, uh, just minimal. Uh, so it's kind of your, your preference, whether you want an ebook or a printed book. It was number one in stress recovery and yoga, although I have found that it's a broader category than even all of that. So with that said, I want to get right to our guest. I met our guest recently at a a uh, speaker event, which may, maybe it will come up here in, in our conversation. We've had mutual friends for a number of years, but it had just never met. But I heard a little bit about this person's story, and my first thought was, I got to get this guy on the podcast so, so the listeners can hear who this guy is and what he does and, and really what he's experienced in and what he's doing today in the world. So our guest has done, I mean, he, he's multifaceted. He's been in the film and movie industry. He's been in oil and gas. He's, he's a speaker. He's done all sorts of different things. Really fascinating guy. And right now he's sitting on the side of the road in Canada just so we can be on the show together today. So um, a step above um, anything else. So anyway, Sean Tyler Foley, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It is an absolute joy and a pleasure. Yes, I'm excited to be here. So I want to jump right in on, on something. And I don't know how much you talk about this. But you know, you used to hang out with with Freddie and Jason, you know, on the film. Tell us about that. What, what was it like to be around these guys? I mean, were you scared? I mean, you were a kid, weren't you? Uh, yeah, no, well, I was definitely in my youth. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been in film and television since I was six. But uh, Freddy versus Jason was actually remarkably, remarkably fun. Um, it was a neat movie to be on, too, because the gentleman who was playing Freddy or uh, playing Jason for that particular film was actually the stunt double for Jason in uh, a previous version of Friday the 13th. So he got to go from double to lead. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I grew up watching Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. <laughs> and I, I mean, I love those films. I remember being like seven or eight years old and my cousin um, would come down to my hometown and she'd bring the VHS copies of all of her favorite horror films. And it was like the only time I could watch horror. So <laughs> I remember watching um, Nightmare on Elm Street the first time and be like, oh, this is just terrifying. And then to be on set um, with Robert Eglin, who plays Freddy, a phenomenal actor. Like, 
he is so good at what he does. And it's so unfortunate that he's been so typecasted because he is just a generous and giving man. And to, to see him, it was weird because we were in the trailer together getting ready. And he, I mean, his makeup process is a long process. So I kind of showed up and was like, hey, hey, whatever, right? And he, me and him had a little chit chat. And then I go off uh, out of the makeup trailer and into my trailer. And then they call us to set. And I come up and then he's in like the full Freddy gear, right? Like he's got the makeup, he's got the glove, he's got the everything. And I was like, <laughs> I just fanboyed all over the place and then filmed just an awkwardly weird scene where I actually morph into Jason. If you do watch the film, there's, uh, there's this, it's a tiny, tiny, like this much and you blink and you miss me. <laughs> but I, I morph into him. So that was a, a couple of days of shooting just to be able to get that sequence right. And then plus all the stuff with, I got to be on set and watch Jason run around and just blow stuff up. So it was, it was a fanboy dream come true. I, I, I was, it was just a thrill. Absolute yeah. thrill. Yeah. It's interesting because I know growing up, I didn't watch a lot of horror movies, but the reason I didn't is because I thought they were so stupid. And it's just like, I know some people would like get scared and nervous and here comes a chainsaw or an ax or, or something yeah. else. And there'd be blood all over the place. And I'd be sitting there just thinking it was absurd and I'd be laughing my head off. Yeah. Well, I just, <laughs> yeah, I, I love the genre just for that, for the campiness of it. Yeah. And uh, you know, particularly like some of the Wes Craven ones, like, like the original nightmare on Elm street is creepy. Yeah, it's scary, but it's scary the same way that Jaws is scary because you actually don't see a lot of Freddy in the very first movie. It's all mind manipulation and, and suggestion. And then the same way that Jaws 2 just, you know, as soon as you see the shark, you're like, eh, it's rubber. The same <laughs> way when they really started playing up Freddy yeah. as a character, you're like, eh, but then it was easy to laugh at. But yeah. I, I would challenge you to go back and rewatch the original one. It's still actually a pretty good art. Yeah, maybe, maybe I, I will. It's been a while and it's been a while since really I've seen any movie. I was talking to a friend this morning and they were talking about going to some movie tonight and going, oh, I forgot there's movie theater here. <laughs> yeah. 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 So um, let's go back a, a, a little bit earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. I know as a child, I believe you were six years old, your dad passed away. Yes, he did, yeah. And um, what what happened there, and, and how do you believe that that affected you today? I mean, it's, it, it's well, a I, tough, tough go. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't be uh, the man I am today if it weren't for my father's passing. Um, it did happen at a very, very young age. And there are a couple of real key pivotal things that came out of that. Um, one of them, I don't know that I would have gotten into the arts or acting if my father hadn't passed. It was something that um, my mom and our immediate family really encouraged me and pushed me into as kind of an outlet. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that they were concerned, you know, growing up without a father figure. And, and so they put me into the arts to kind of give me some direction. I was naturally um, attuned to it anyways. I had already kind of experienced that gift and want of performance from, um, from the school play when I was the first Christmas play that I got to do. My father passed in February 
and I was I played Joseph in the in the school play uh, in December. So he'd actually gotten to see what would have essentially been my first stage performance ever. Um, and I think everybody kind of recognized at that time that I, that was that was a real thing to go for. And so I think that got encouraged um, more so than I think it would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. It, had, it had not passed. Um, and I was young, so I didn't really fully understand the gravity of the situation until I was probably 11 or 12 years old. I remember being in the sixth grade and, um, and there was a real push for me to be uh, very scholastically inclined as well. My father was a teacher. So going through school in a small town, everybody knew my father. And he was really well respected and well loved. He was a community leader, um, very active in Act of 2030, um, was um, with the Rotary. Like he was, he was very, very community oriented, very community minded, and everybody knew him and loved him. And so a lot of the teachers kind of took me under their wing and made sure that I was succeeding. So I, it was easy because we were in a small town too. So there was, it wasn't like there were large classes. Um, and it was easy to give attention, but I always felt that I got just that little bit more, um, mm-hmm. that people really took the time to, to mentor and tutor me along. And so in grade six or the sixth grade, I was, um, I received a, a scholarship. I ended up being the top student in the school, which is mind you, not that hard when you have two sixth grade classes graduating with, you know, 20 kids in each. So, um, it wasn't it wasn't a great leap to to get there, but I did pass the the top of my grade, and uh, and got this little scholarship. And I remember getting up from the back of the auditorium in the gymnasium uh, because they always seat you. You know, this little kid sit in the front, and then when you're the top of the elementary food chain in the sixth grade, you're way at the back. And um, during the award ceremony at the end of the year. I got up from the back and was walking around and, and my mother had been called to, you know, come and see and, and, and participate in the assembly. And there was, uh, I don't, to this day, I have no idea why it was this way, but she, there, the chair beside her was empty. And I remember getting up and seeing her and she was so proud and you know, she kind of, she was choking back some of those, those pride tears, uh, happy, sad. And I, I remember just seeing her uh, starting to tear up and having a flashback to seeing her cry at my dad's funeral and then seeing the empty chair and symbolically kind of associating that with my father yeah. and his absence. And that's when it hit me. It was the first time that I ever cried over my father's death. Mm. And I remember just, it just washed over me. It was weird. I I remember being hyper aware of his absence and what that meant for the future, because this was just a grade six graduation, but he wasn't going to be there for my senior year. He certainly wasn't going to see me graduate high school. If I went to university, he was never going to see me graduate university. He was never going to see me get married never see his grandchildren and all of that 
hit me in about a 10 second span walking past my mother in that empty chair at 11 years old. Wow. It just, it just washed over me. And I remember being just so impacted by that. Yeah. But I also had incredible support because of that. Like my mother, like it takes a community, right. To raise a child. And we had a community. My, um, my mom's best friend, Terry, uh, who I will always forever refer to as my aunt, Terry, who I actually will probably see this, <laughs> this evening. She's out in the destination that I'm driving to. She, you know, took us on my uncle Brad, uh, took me and my sister in. So, you know, we were, while my mom was working and my mom worked hard, hard. She, uh, worked 18 hour days just to put food on the table for us and, and needed the support of people. Um, so friends and family who became aunts and uncles uh, just came together. My, our real related close family supported us in ways that we'll never be able to pay back ever. Mm-hmm. And it, that lesson unto itself showed me the power of community and how much we need each other and, and showed me what can be done when people come together uh, for inclusiveness instead of divisiveness, because it would be really easy in that situation just to cut my mom loose. Um, and particularly with our family being spread over a very large geographic area, you know, and that they could have gone to the side and, and it didn't. Yeah. I've seen what happens when it does. And so as, as much as my father's passing was sad, I really do think that it shaped who I was and allowed me to become who I am and recognize um, the gifts that have been given to me mm-hmm. that I don't think I would have had had he remained alive. I certainly wouldn't have had the same life. My life yeah. would be drastically different otherwise. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't lose my father that young. I, I was 26 when my dad passed. Uh, but I mean, it still had a great impact as well. Um, but I want to find out a little bit more. So after that, and as you continue to go through school and high school and really began to do more acting, um, you know, on, on the high school level and, and such, I, I know that something else came up when, when you were 17 mm-hmm. um, surrounding a... I guess it was a play. What play was it? Well, so I went to a fine arts high school, um, which was phenomenal. Uh, just an unbelievably well set up school at the time. Really, really ahead of its uh, ahead of its time as far as curriculum and scholastics go. They were on the Copernicus system, which, for those who don't know, uh, versus a semester system where you have four or five classes over the course of a half a year. And then you get into your next semester and four or five classes over that. They broke the classes down two classes over a quarter. So you did two classes a quarter and then another two, two and two. So you really had a class in the morning and a class in the afternoon. And with the fine arts program, um, with, when you were in performance with the main stage program, it was a three-year program and you did a performance a year and in your third quarter, uh, you got a spare, which meant you had the whole morning off. 
and then you did whatever your school course was in the afternoon and then the performance in the evening was your your class but then you rehearsed for the five months leading up to that and in order to graduate you needed to complete the all three years of performance so it was referenced as performance art 15 25 35 and in my 35 year my senior year um january 1st 1997 i had a mini stroke mm -hmm. that left me um 80 to 95 percent paralyzed on my left side face i couldn't I had to sleep with a patch because mm. I couldn't close my eye. Um, I drooled out the side. Like I couldn't, I couldn't close my lip. I had to, it was hard to eat, particularly anything liquid. So it was even harder to drink. Mm. I had to kind of do one of these things to try and get stuff back. Um, lost the uh, feeling in my hands, really lost use, uh, lost the use of mobility in my leg. Um, and in a fine arts performance where you're singing, and dancing and acting, as soon as you lose the ability to emote out your face or sing or talk or control, uh, I couldn't dance. I had to withdraw from the program. So I actually never did graduate from the fine arts school simply mm -hmm. because I couldn't complete that final performance. Now I got my high school education, I got my diploma, but I never did actually graduate from my program so at the time, what were you thinking, um, not necessarily in the sense of death, but that your life was over and oh, you're never going to be able to act or speak again? And Devastated. I remember uh, of, it was like three or four days afterwards, so probably around the 4th of January, I actually finally got in to see uh, a doctor for a proper diagnosis, got in for the MRI and the and the CT scan and all the fun imagery and everything that they're going to do. And the doctor's saying, you know, they, they really, they suspected uh, a stroke or a mini stroke just based on the brain patterns. They weren't, they couldn't quite rule out a palsy, um, but the palsy would have been different. They just, they, they weren't really sure. But I remember the doctor um, sitting down with me and my mom, and saying, you know, that in time it may get a little bit better, but it was probably, this was probably going to be how I was going to be for the rest of my life. And for 12 years, my, I, I, my whole plan, my whole vision was I'm going to Hollywood. Yeah. I'm going to New York. I'm going to be a performer. I'm going to be an actor. This is, this is, I, you know, I'm, I'm either going to end up on the East coast or the West coast, but I'm going big time. Um, and, and it got in my head, in my estimation, everything got pulled out. The rug got pulled right out from under me, literally couldn't walk. And, uh, I, I even remember having to have that, that rough conversation. So the school started back up around the seventh or eighth and going in and explaining to the director of the program, you know, I don't. I don't know if I can dance. So what can we do to kind of adapt for this? Like what, what do, how do I fit into the show and him sitting down with me saying, well, you don't. Okay. And I, and I remember thinking, what do you mean? I don't, I mean, we've been rehearsing for 
three months, like this is, this is my thing. I got this nice little supporting role in this, like, you know, we've, we've been working on all the choreography for the dancing. I just, I just need some time. And he was like, no, you can't be in, can't, you can't continue doing the show. And, and, and they all, those dominoes started hitting really quick between the doctor saying, you probably aren't going to get over this. And then my director saying, well, because of this, you can't be in this show. Just like, I felt the whole weight of the world come on to me and I just felt my reality collapse. And yeah. I remember, I, not knowing what to do, just being completely and totally devastated. And you, you, you had already been in the film with Freddie and Jason too, right? At that point? No, not at that point. Oh, at that it was point, after that. Been, uh, I'd been in Superman oh. and uh, a couple of uh, local television shows that had been filmed in around the area. Um, but I hadn't, I hadn't quite done Freddy versus Jason yet. That was once I got to Vancouver. So, was, so what, 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 what did you do? I mean, for after you had this happen and you, you had your mini stroke and you were barely able to walk and all these things were going on, was there something particularly special that you did to recover from that and heal from that? Or was it just time? Well, it was, it was definitely time, but again, it takes a community one of my closest father figures who really took me under his wing and really guided me in my youth uh, was a gentleman by the name of Bob Corbett, Dr. Bob Corbett. He was the local chiropractor and he'd act, his wife, Joanne was also a chiropractor and they had been my mom's practitioners when they my mom and Joanne were pregnant together at the same time with me and who ended up being one of my best friends Vanda and we just kind of grew up together and we even moved town so I was I was born in one small town then we moved to another small town and in that small town Bob and Joe ended up showing up a couple years later and we just we were always together and Bob really took me in and he he more than anyone else understood the power of the mind and how our thoughts have an incredible ability to shape our reality and by shaping our reality shape whatever future we want to have and he worked diligently with me and Joanne worked diligently with me, both helping me physically rehab because they were doing chiropractic adjustments on me at no cost. They didn't charge. What well, If I had to actually have covered that bill, I don't even know what it would have been. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't even, I don't know that they even registered it with anybody. They just, you come in, you get your adjustment and go. And uh, Joanne um, is a naturopath and has done all kinds of, of holistic training uh, above and beyond her chiropractic training which is incredible too I mean mm -hmm. uh, that's a lot of schooling to become a chiropractor and uh, so she did laser acupuncture on me they were doing uh, physio for me um, they even were helping with um, orthotics to help kind of balance me and, and, and keep everything aligned because I was having to compensate so much with my right side um, 
that things were out of balance and they were, they, they just worked diligently with me, but they also worked on my mind. They let me know, first of all, that there was a future mm-hmm. that look, and they were nice too, because they could, I could see the metrics. I, I'm, I'm a real numbers person and they, they were on kind of the forefront uh, of measurement with chiropractic. As you got to remember, this is mid to late nineties and I mean, we're, you know, people were still on 364 computers, right? Like it was, you didn't have a lot with chiropractic beyond that here, we're going to snap you click and now you go. They had graphs and they had machines that were, that were really taking a look at the spine and what was going on. And so they were able to show me incrementally what my improvements were, um, where I was and they could, I could see where my balance and my gait on my step and my walk would change over time and how I was starting to put more pressure and more pressure and more pressure on my left side. And it was starting to balance out. Like I could, I could see the numbers. So I had something to shoot for. And it was those, those incremental steps um, in really fighting and pushing because I wasn't going to let it. I needed when I graduated to be able to go out to Vancouver and at least make an attempt at a film career. I, sure. I had to do it. And it was this driving factor. And, and they, they really pushed me. They're like, if you want to do that, this is how we do it. And you got to work on your mind as much as you got to work on your body because your mind will help heal the body and your mind will help you visualize and focus on what needs to go. So, 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 so in this whole process, they were doing adjustments, but were you doing like visualization exercises of yourself being whole and healed oh, yeah. or oh, yeah. I mean, like a Joe Disp- Dr. Joe Dispenza type? Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, you know, exactly. So a lot of, I've actually watched a lot of, uh, uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza's, uh, uh, uh stuff on YouTube. Um, another one, Dr. John Demartini, yes. uh, um, Bob, Dr. Corbett introduced me to Dr. Demartini very, very early on in my life. And I'm so grateful and thankful to that because, uh, Demartini's teachings, uh, you know, even, uh, going back into masonry too, uh, they, they all of those practices about the mind and, and sharpening and focusing on on your internal and visualization and the power of the mind, the heart mind connection, all of that. I was introduced to and really um, expanded on through through their care and then their influence of who they learned from and saying, you know, you should you should really read this or or follow this person. Here's some information that you may find useful. Um, Bob was a genius at being subtle and Joanne even more so uh, at really guiding me and allowing me to come to my own conclusions and do my own research sure. me in the right direction to discover it on my own yeah you, you, you know and through my own healing process and you know starting yoga becoming a yoga teacher and um, learning from yoga masters and um, all sorts of different people. And it's really, there's a lot of obviously the physical aspect to like a yoga practice, but there's the emotional, mental, spiritual side of it as well, which is really the practice. And within that, you can come to that point of that visualization, you know, that your friend, Dr. Bob Corbett talks about, or, um, any of the others 
and really learn to heal ourselves. And, you know, that's a lot about what this show is for and what, what a lot of listeners um, want to know about is how, to, how that works and hear other people do it because the power of story is so strong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you sharing your story right, right now, there could be a listener right now that really needs to hear what you're saying because either them or maybe somebody close to them is experiencing something similar or they're really connecting with that. And um, so I really appreciate you sharing um, that story with us and knowing too that um, part of what you do today is really helping people tell their story and, and the power of story because for me, you know, I have this belief that stories heal. And that over eons, you know, we used to sit around campfires and tell stories. And we, we verbally passed on traditions and ideas on how to heal and, and how to be a better person and how to live life and, and all of that. So I know that you've taken somewhat of your story and, again, brought it forward to help other people tell their story. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Oh, absolutely. And it, it is, it's a, it's a mission of mine to empower people to be able to share and tell their stories for everything that you just said. We as humans connect through the power of story. Uh, story allows us to find empathy in each other. I know that I was able to overcome a lot of what I did because people were able to share their stories with me and both stories of encouragement and stories of warning. We learn both ways. Uh, you know, even if you look at the hero's journey uh, or the hero's myth, and when we talk about how that structure works, you're, you, it's either a cautionary tale, don't do this, or it's an exemplary tale of do this and these will be the results, either good or bad. Mm-hmm. And I find that there is a ripple effect when people are able to tell their story. And I've seen it time and time and time and time and time again where one person's story, when told correctly, mm-hmm. has had an impact on multiple people that have then had an impact on an even larger scale. And it's that ripple that allows us to find our humanity in our, and find our uh, shared commonality. Yeah. And that's really where community and society is strengthened. Yeah. So. I, I have seen the power of story and it is, it has really become a mission over the last, it's really crystallized really in the last three years, but it's been an ongoing mission for probably the last 10 to really connect people through the power of story and let everybody know that you do have a story. There's so many people, I guarantee you there's at least one listener right now who's going, Oh yeah, that sounds great. But I, you know, what about, mine isn't an important story. Yeah. Mine isn't an important story and they diminish, diminish that story. Uh, a really good friend of mine and fellow speaker, Connie Jacob, runs a program called Hope Talks. <laughs> and it's centered around um, mental health particularly. And, and Connie's own personal story is, is a very impactful one because her son at a very early age, like pre-12 years old, while he's still in elementary school started to battle with suicidal thoughts 
luckily he's still with us. Um, but it's not without its struggle. And he has certainly been close a few times. And so her story is two part, both with the, this is what my, this is where my son is at mentally. This is the impact that it's had on me mentally. Now I struggle with mental health because my son struggles with it. And now she's created probably one of the greatest communities I've ever seen where people are able to actually talk about those struggles and the number of people who are able to identify with that. I even think of my mom and my uncle when my grandma was starting to pass. My uh, grandma didn't have my mother or she didn't start having children until she was in her 40s. Mm. And so there's a fairly large generation gap. And she was very near her 100th birthday before she passed. But my mom was still very youthful at that point. And just seeing my mom and more so my uncle struggle with my grandmother's loss of memory and, and how that impacted their mental health and the, the strain that that was on. Because, but for her mind, my grandmother was incredibly healthy. And so she, she was able to do a lot of those things. She wasn't impeded by old age, but for the loss of her thoughts. Yeah. And now it was, you know, because mom was able to talk about that, I think with somebody who was able, you, she, there was a bridge, there was an ability to know that she wasn't alone. And that's, that's that power of story. You need to be able to talk. We need to be able to do it because if because you and I have had similar struggles. Yeah. And as soon as we figured that out, now we are on a deeper connection and we can go, I, I know where you're at yeah. and I can offer you support and you can offer me support. And that one plus one is not two. That one plus one is probably 10 or a hundred yeah. because now I'm able to provide strength to you. You're able to provide strength to me. It's like the keystone in an arch. It's just one little piece, but it's holding up the entire mechanism. You pull that one piece away and the whole thing crumbles. So just having that one support, and it is a support, speaks volumes. And that, again, is the power of, that's the power of connection. If you can bring literally worlds together with this one thing, it holds the whole structure together. And, and, and through that, offering that one support, the whole world comes out better. Yeah. Now, I, you're, you're teaching people and, and training people now on essentially storytelling, on, on talking and speaking and um, sharing the story and, um, you know, really developing a lot of confidence and communication skills and mm -hmm. such. And I, I know that you, I got a copy of your new book. I'm going to put it up for those that are watching. The, the Power to Speak Naked. What a, what a title. Look at that, that cover, Sean. <laughs> How in the world did you come up with a title like that, The Power to Speak Naked? I don't know. So tell the listeners and myself a story about that. So the, I had I'd wanted to write this book for a long time, and I'd gone to a workshop with a, a really, really good speaker, actually, um, Jerry Robert. He runs uh, Black Card Books and uh, puts on a whole series of free seminars, two and a half days, 
big sales pitch at the end. They're, they're a fun thing to go to. Um, but I, you know, it was, it was for authors and, and getting it out. And I had this vision of the book uh, right down to the cover, but I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what the title was. And, and one of the nice things about the event that I'd gone to is there, there were the honeys, um, uh, a married couple and they were, they were at the back of the room. And I, I remember working with them at, kind of one-on-one in and around the, the Saturday evening. And I was, and they were, they were, they were trying to draw out of me, you know, what, well, what's, what's the essence. And I'm like, well, you know, it drives me crazy when everybody says to get up and, uh, and speak and, and picture the audience naked because somehow that's going to calm your nerves. It's ridiculous. It's the craziest thing I've ever heard. It doesn't work. And they're laughing. They're like, why is that? I'm like, because first of all, nobody does it. And you'd be spending so much mental energy trying to picture this naked audience that you would, you know, forget. And I was like, you could probably go out. I'd rather have somebody go out with the emperor's clothing on because that's true confidence. If you could get up on stage and just speak naked, that would be better confidence than going out and, uh, and doing it and picturing the audience naked. And they're kind of, they kind of looked at each other and they're like, well, that could be the title. And I'm like, what? And they're like, they, they, they focused in on the emperor's clothes part. They're like, you know, speaking to the emperor, the emperor's new clothes. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And then all of a sudden we both at the same time, uh, Jamie and me both looked at each other and we were like the power to speak naked. And, and because it was at the same time, and it was so synchronous. It just, at that point, that was the title. It just, it locked in. I was like, no, that's exactly it. I want to be able to empower people that if they needed to, they were, they would be so confident in their messaging and their story and what they were saying that they could go out on that stage completely and totally nude. And, and I don't mean it in the, in the actual naked sense, although I would love to empower people to do that because I could, and I was challenged once to do it and I did. And that's a funny sub story to itself, but I honestly could go out and deliver a talk completely and totally naked because I have confidence in the message that I'm delivering that nobody would be paying attention to this. They'd be paying attention to what was going in here. And that ultimately is all that matters. And so the real truth behind the title is that, yeah, I think it'd be great if I could empower people and, you know, nudist colony. <laughs> but what I want people to be able to do is go out and be raw. Yeah. Do not have to strip away everything, the devices, the um, mnemonics of everything, like just, strip it down to the bare basics of what you and I started this conversation discussing. And that is communication going back to caveman times when the way to pass information was done orally and you had to be good at it and convicted in your message so that you had influence on the people who needed to hear that. Yeah. They didn't have PowerPoint when man huddled around a fire they didn't have powerpoint well now wait a minute they did have powerpoint they had long sticks and they would point it to the animals they just killed and 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 brought home to eat yeah (laughs) 
So, but anyways, yeah. Well, and but and therein lay my point that the we have always we've always discussed these things. Yeah. And and have an oral tradition. We didn't need all the fancy fancy. So I want people to get back to that. Yeah. And that and really it's empowering people to understand that A, they have a story. B, their story matters. That if it's important to them, it's important to us. Yeah. And that is what brings communities together because without the story, there is no empathy. And that's why one of the first things that I teach people when I am working with them one-on-one -on -one is that. I'm, after that little interruption, we got cut off, but now we're back again. So Sean, can you finish the story you were telling us? Cause it was so good. So I will sum up for you. Cause I was, I, I think I remember where we were at just before, you know, the phone decided to overheat. What for eons and eons of time, it's been the power of story that has connected people. And really that's, that's the ultimate point that empowering people to know that their story matters and that it has that ripple effect. You never know who is struggling with what yeah. until you tell your story. And that's why when I coach people, one of the things that I often tell them is the thing you are most afraid to say is the thing that people likely need to hear because we're all keeping things inside and we're all like, well, I can't, I can't tell them that I can't say this thing. I can't expose myself that way. And yet when we open ourselves up that way, that's when the connection is found. When people go, I struggled with that too. And I was afraid to say anything. Yeah. One of the greatest examples I ever saw of that was a good friend of mine, Jen Whitney, who speaks on finances. Um, and genius on finances. This is a person who paid off her entire mortgage on a, on a cop salary. So her and her husband, she didn't work. She stayed at home with her two children. Her husband was a, a police officer and they paid off a massive mortgage in three and a half years because she buckled down on her finances. And her trigger point was when she had a shoe shopping addiction and she would like hide her purchases from her husband to the point where she would go in, buy shoes and ask the, the store to keep the box, keep the box. I'm just going to take the shoes. And then she'd put the shoes inside the purse because how was he going to know which was new shoes and which wasn't. And this got to the point where she got a credit card bill in and she didn't know how she was going to pay that along with everything else that she had to pay. And she started thinking to herself, where do we have money in the house? Where can I get some money? And she remembered that her daughter had a piggy bank. And so she walked up to the room to try and grab this piggy bank and found that as soon as the money clinked in it, she just got this gut wrenching feeling in her stomach. She's like, how could I do this to my own daughter? And that was the moment of change for her. She was like, I was about to steal from my own daughter. Now that has impact when she tells that story. Everybody empathizes with her. Everybody's like, I get it. I get the snap. But if she kept that to herself, she wouldn't be the coach that she is now. She wouldn't be able to claim that she's helped over 500 people become debt free. And she does it in rapid fashion. Like she is a, a, a advent studier of Dave Ramsey. Uh, she follows his method a lot. 
teaches on her own. She she was doing this before she started instruction under Dave Ramsey, and then it's only accelerated after that. And really, her power is in her story in saying, "I've been there. I know where you're at, and this is why." This yeah. is where I was at my lowest. This is the flaw that I don't want the world to know, but here it is. Yeah. And, and that is really the power of story. And so the thing that people are most afraid to say is probably the thing your audience needs to hear. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I, tell me if you relate to this too. You know, I, I look at this and I, I look at your book and I think about, you know, this book is, is really great for speakers and at the same time, the power of story isn't just for getting in front of an audience, it's being able to have dinner with friends, to be able to communicate with their family, to be able to talk to the person at the grocery store, whatever it may be, just everyday life. The power that somebody can gain from understanding how to tell stories and, and how to be open, because it's not always easy to be open and, be vulnerable and um, because of that idea that we don't want people to judge us, so to speak. So we're afraid to say these things. So this, like the power to, to speak naked, would you say is really for any, anybody? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And hey, a lot of where I specialize in is corporate communication. Um, and really from a leadership development standpoint, people are so concerned about how they look that they forget by using story, by saying the things that you're keeping up in tight here, you actually become a better leader because now people understand your viewpoint and why you're doing the things you're doing. It really creates context to to the drive and it, I think the more leaders are able to share some of those those innermost driving factors that maybe they're afraid to share as soon as they do that their leadership takes off yeah. and ev again everybody has a story so from the you know little community group or, or even your social circle amongst your friends the more open and honest you can be with each other, the more those barriers break down, the more we can be involved in each other's lives, the more, if I know what your hopes and dreams are, the better I can support them. Yeah. And if you don't ever tell me what that, that secret desire is, how can I know to look out for that? Yeah. And, and, and that, again, power of connection, power of story, power of community they're all the same they're all interrelated i need to know who you are in order for me to support you so open up to me and let me know that that person so that i can yeah yeah and to me you know gets back to that idea of storytelling over years connecting with family and community and wherever we've been over over that period of time um as we get closer to the end sean I've got a question that I really want the listeners to um, um, hear you. I mean, you, do you have like three simple ideas or three simple tips that a listener could use right now to speak naked, so to speak, to speak from their heart and to who they are with those people around them or whether it's on stage? 
Um, I think the, the first tip would be know that everybody wants you to succeed. Particularly if you're going to be, if you want to speak on stage, um, hopefully your, your social circle wants you to succeed. If your social circle doesn't want you to succeed, you need to find a new social circle. So let's exclude the social circle, your immediate, your immediate friends and family, and let's focus on if there is somebody who wants to get up and they want to uh, give a message from the stage, your audience wants you to succeed. Nobody ever goes to a presentation, nobody ever goes to a performance uh, or a lecture with the forethought going in that they want the speaker to fail. I have never gone to see somebody speak and prior to me arriving at the venue thought to myself, man, I hope this sucks. I hope this person bombs horribly. That is never on my thought. My, I'm always going hoping that it's going to be great, that it's going to, I'm going to learn something, it's going to exceed my expectations. And the majority of the audience goes in doing that. So if we know that that's our audience's thought of us, why don't we have that same thought? Why is our mental gymnastics focused so much on, oh, I'm going to forget stuff. I hope I'm going to suck. This is going to be awful. It's, it's not the reality. So my first tip to everybody is to know that the audience is on your side. All you have to do is meet and or exceed their expectations because their expectations are already great. So you don't, you just have to show up and be you. You're already the authority. You were the person that was given the mic for whatever reason. And that makes you the authority and everybody's there already on your side or they wouldn't have come at all. The next thing to remember related to that is you are the authority. You know you better than anybody else. And if you are talking about you and your original thought, your original content, nobody knows it better than you and nobody knows what you're going to say. So there's no way that you can screw up because everything that you're going to say is your own thought and nobody knows what was going to be said until you said it. Mm -hmm. So you have the audience on your side and you are the authority on everything that you're about to say and everything that's going to come out of your mouth. So the third tip is lose the script. Mm -hmm. You and I are having a wonderful conversation and we didn't script a single moment of it. Mm -hmm. And that makes it authentic. That makes it real. Mm -hmm. Trust yourself. Trust that you are the authority in your message. Trust that when you tell your story, you are telling it from the point of authority because you are the only one who knows your story inside and out. You are the one who lived it. You are the one who knows the details. So tell the story. Learn to become a good storyteller and you will impact more people. And those are tricks that you can learn along the way. But know that you are the authority up front and it'll be easy to tell your story. And your story will have impact because it'll be authentic, it'll be real. And remember, and for anybody who's listening, write this down, authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. They are one and the same. The more self-aware you can be, the more authentic you will be the more impact your story will have. Yeah, I, I, I like that, yeah. yeah. Those would be my three tips. Yeah, excellent, wonderful. Uh, where can somebody reach you for the listeners? Where's the best place to get in contact with you if they want more information? If they want to reach me, seantylerfoley.com. It's my website, it has all the links to all the socials. Um, if they really want to get creative, they can click on the media that has all my download information, 
social links, uh, all the other websites and the businesses that I run. Every, everything's on SeanTylerFully.com, including the link to the book. So if they want to get it on Amazon, they just need to remember SeanTylerFully.com and we'll link them to everywhere they need to be. So, so the book right now is available on Amazon? It is. Awesome. I'm, I'm going to hold it up again for the people that are watching. And if, if you're listening again on um, Apple or Stitcher or one of the other um, platforms, if you go to the Falling Up radio website, you will also see Sean's page there at the bottom of the page will be his link to his website too. So if you can't remember what it is, just go to the radio show and it'll all be there for you to find out um, more information. Um, Sean, it's been really great to get to know you. I mean, we, we met a couple months ago at um, really a speaking event with our friend Les Brown, which was phenomenal. And uh, we didn't have a lot of time to get to know each other there. So I, I really appreciate your willingness to be authentic and real here today share a bit of your story and your journey and uh, to give the listeners some ideas. I know that, that I learned a lot and um, I love doing these conversations and I, I love having this conversation with you and I suspect we'll get to know each other um, more over the years in, in the speaker community and such. So again, thank you uh, very much for uh, being a guest today. Uh, truly, it was my pleasure, Michael. And anytime you need anything or your listeners need anything, you reach out, you ask, and I'll be happy to be of service to you. Super. Thank you. Hold, hold on for, for the other side. And um, for the listeners, again, uh, come and look at Sean's page and, and link up with him and um, go to his website and get his book, The Power to Speak Naked. Again, I, I love that title. So uh, uh, we'll talk to you soon.